The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 4, Kagan, Gyrios, Umura, and Soli investigate a room under the tower and tend to their wounds. Kagan, in particular, is in bad shape. Gyrios tends to him to the extent that he is able. Their investigation is interrupted by a knocking from behind a very small door set into the stone wall. Upon opening the door, the party finds none other than the girl who had abandoned them to fend for themselves with the ogre. Her name, she tells them, is Eridine. Gyrios convinces the party to release her and take her into their custody until they can all safely escape the dangers of the forest. Unbeknownst to the party, their presence has been detected. The master of the house is aware of their intrusion and is preparing a deadly reception for them. Chapter 5, Part 1, Day 2, Afternoon Rathenfell the Adored sat in a meditative trance one floor down and directly below the party. His magic was strong enough to reach through the stone ceiling and scan the whole room above. He knew what had happened, but he remained calm. He had been in worse situations before. There was always a way to come out on top. One must simply remain level-headed. But this was a setback, a major setback. Still, he was a patient man, a disciplined man. He could get a new apprentice and a new laboratory. It was a shame that this one was probably compromised. Alone, he could not guarantee a victory over these intruders. No, to face them directly was too risky. He would need to destroy everything and go. He shifted in his chair. Perhaps he could devise some kind of trap. Did he have the time? He blamed himself. He should have had something prepared for this eventuality. It was his mistake, but he would not make it again in the future. What a shame, he thought again. 
This was a good place. Now, what to do about the intruders? As if in answer to his thoughts, a wailing cry sounded from beyond his door. It ended in the sound of sobbing. Raffenfell did not even notice. His thoughts were on the people above him. His magic probed their thoughts one by one. Quickly he learned that these intruders were the very slaves he was meant to have purchased from the goblins. They were scared and desperate. Some of them were hurt quite badly, and one was blind. That would have been Dermond's doing, but Dermond was dead too. The telepathic link had fluttered and gone out like a flame on a spent candle. Raffenfell was frankly impressed that he had not fled immediately. He had never known Dermond to be a brave man, though he had been a capable servant and a promising pupil. Dermond had had access to money too. A real shame to lose that. Although he could not hear through the stone, their thoughts were as words in his mind, and he knew when they had discovered the girl and were discussing what to do with her. He did not much care what they did with her. It made no difference at all. With luck, they would simply leave. If they explored further, if they satisfied their curiosity, well, he would not fail to provide them with some entertainment. He would leave them something most interesting to find. After a time, he brought his spell to an end. The voices in his head faded and then were gone. He got up from his chair, stretched, and moved through the doorway toward the sound of sobbing. There, there, my angels, he said soothingly. The sobbing turned into a strangled cry and was answered by several others. Voices wailing in anguish in the dark. There, there, yes, the demons have come as we knew they would someday. But we will not fall to them so easily, will we? No, we will take up our holy weapons and fight. Because Raffenfell is a potential major NPC in our story, I'll roll his stats and include the role in the podcast. If you're curious about Dermond, his stats are available too. Simply check out the blog. Okay, let's roll up the first real villain for Tale of the Manticore, Raffenfell the Adored. Stats. We begin with strength. The role... A seven. Intelligence. 16, that works. Wisdom. A 14. Dexterity. 10. Constitution. Eight. Charisma. 14. Luck. 10. Not bad at all. Raffenfell has several penalties and bonuses from these stats. He's going to have a minus one on his attack and damage rolls for his low strength. He'll have a bonus to languages for his high intelligence. His wisdom will give him a bonus to some saving throws. His low constitution means that the already low hit points for a wizard will be even lower. He'll have to be careful. And his charisma will give him some bonuses on reaction rolls. Let's roll his hit points. Three die four, minus one to each die. 
Remember that my monsters and NPCs in Tale of the Manticore will min out at half hit points. For him, that would be six. Here's the roll. I've rolled a 10. However, I must subtract three. Therefore, Raffenfell the Adored has a mere seven hit points. His armor class, as he dresses only in robes, will be nine. Hello there. I know you are currently enjoying your well-performed, well-thought-out, and well-executed D&D podcast. But have you thought about changing things up? If you're looking for non-stop, silly action, then come on over to Nat1 Presents Daft Monks. Not only will you probably not understand the story, but you won't even care because we don't. And I promise you that. For real though, Daft Monks is a half-talk show, half-actual play D&D podcast performed by improv comedy amateurs. Join us for our campaign featuring the delightfully deviant exploits of idiot vampire hunters Trevor Belmont and Abraham Van Helsing. Bi-weekly on wherever you listen to podcasts. Dramatis Personae Raffenfell the Adored Raffenfell, sometimes called the Adored, is a level 3 human wizard. He is 48 years old, but looks 10 years younger. He's completely bald, but often wears a well-oiled goatee of glossy black streaked with silver. His eyes are light blue, and they seem to twinkle like jewels with a light of their own. He's of slender build, standing 5 foot 11 inches tall and weighing 150 pounds. He moves like a courtier, with poise and grace. Altogether, Raffenfell is a handsome man, admired by other men and desired by most women. To complement his good looks, Raffenfell has a rich baritone voice. He uses his physical gifts to his advantage often and is something of a social chameleon able to adapt to almost any environment. Despite his charm and good looks, Raffenfell is a frail man under the skin. He avoids physical labor at all costs, as he gets hurt easily and is slow to heal, especially since passing middle age. Life has taught Raffenfell that rewards come not to the hardworking man, but to the prudent, and so his choices are always calculated. He does nothing impulsively and prides himself on his discipline. When faced with a conflict, he will always avoid it or run if he determines that the challenge will not easily be overcome. He will always learn from his mistakes and endeavor to correct them. For this reason, he is a very dangerous adversary. In his younger days, Raffenfell was a traveling salesman and something of a mountebank, selling charms and his specialty love potions. His adventures took him far and wide, and now, in his middle age, he is a man of considerable experience. His life as a hawker of fake love serums came to an end in the city of Silmoral, when he met a noblewoman of middle years named Elaraine. The two became romantically involved after Raffenfell found out that she was a sorceress of considerable ability. He wooed her and won her through various contrivances. He eventually convinced her to make him a real brewer of potions by teaching him some of the mystic arts. He proved an exceptional student, eager and intelligent, and their love affair continued successfully for some six years. During this time, 
Raffenfell gave up his business and began researching potion-making in earnest alongside other studies in mysticism. He became fascinated with all magics having to do with casting glamours, charms, and mind-reading. He enjoyed the irony that things he used to do as a fake, he could now do for real. Once he reached the point where he had felt he learned everything he could from Ellerane, he left her, disappearing in the middle of the night without leaving so much as a note to explain himself. Before leaving, he had thought it might be difficult to sever their connection. He'd thought he might miss her, but it was easy. In fact, after that night, he never gave her another thought. Well, all that happened long ago. Since then, he traveled the country, never staying in one town for very long. When the money ran out, some simple blackmailing of the local rich was a quick way to fill his purse. His primary ambition was the pursuit of his studies, which he would always conduct until the locals became suspicious and he was forced to pull up stakes. For the past year, he has made a home of the ruined tower in the Kingswood. He learned about the place through a man named Dermond, a young historian whom he befriended and eventually took on as an apprentice. At first, Dermond had not been easily convinced to participate in his experiments. After all, the experiments called for a certain fortitude and moral flexibility. Some people may have found his practices unsavory, even monstrous. But once Raffenfell taught Dermond a trick to easily charm women into his bed, the apprentice overlooked his scruples and would do most anything his master asked. Raffenfell worked on expanding and making comfortable his hidden laboratory for a time, making Dermond do all of the construction, of course, while he played the architect. Over time, he has had his well-funded and devoted apprentice source and deliver all of the alchemical equipment he needed, and even a few small luxuries. He also secured his test subjects through Dermond, or occasionally through a goblin tribe he approached using a mixture of patience, bribery, magical persuasion, and magical perception. Raffenfeld does not wish to leave his current place of residence and research. He has a good thing going, unmolested by local towns while still able to secure live test subjects. If the intruders force him to abandon the place, he will not foolishly make a stand, but neither will he give it to them without exacting a price. Chapter 5 Part 2 Day 2 Evening Status Soli Four of nine hit points Kagan One of eight hit points Umura Three of five hit points Girios Six of seven hit points Eridine Four of four hit points Spells available Umura has memorized S.H.I.E.L.D. It will be evening soon, said Umura. I think it best we plan to stay here at least for the night. Thank you, replied Kagan. He was adjusting one of Girios's bandages. I'm not sure how far I'd have gotten on this knee if we'd tried to press on, but perhaps with a little rest it will be better in the morning. We'll want to get these bodies out of here and make sure there are no other dangers about before we do anything else. 
Umura tucked a stray lock of hair behind her ear. Let's see what's behind these doors, said Kagan. We can worry about the bodies later. You'll have to come with us, observed Gyrios. That lamp is our only source of light. Can you stand? It's stiff, but I can still walk on it. Here, I'll carry the light. Soli? He gave the dwarf a knowing look, and the dwarf responded with a nod. Soli handed the key ring to Umura and adjusted his grip on his sword while the woman went to open the flimsy door. The first key she tried fit the lock, and there was a little click as she turned it. She pulled the door open and stepped inside. Soli and Kagan followed behind. Eridine and Gyrios brought up the rear. The door opened into a short tunnel, which led to a rectangular room, approximately 20 by 30 feet in size. As they brought the lamp closer, they were relieved to see that the room was uninhabited. As with the circular room, this one was made of stone and mortar material. Empty, rotting bunk bed frames, eight in total, lined opposite walls to their left and right. A desk was against the far wall, with a footlocker close by, evidently serving double duty as a chair. In the center of the room, on the floor, was a clean bedroll, several books, and an assortment of candles. It's a barracks, said Gyrios, so this was definitely a guard tower or watchtower once. Looks as though our friend was living out of it. Kagan commented. If he was living here, said Eridine, that might mean... There's food here, said Umura, completing her thought enthusiastically. Kagan held the lamp and watched the door while everyone else split apart to search the room. After a few minutes, they returned with their findings. Well, he asked, anything? Eridine and Soli, who had searched the bunks, were empty-handed, but Gyrios and Umura came back with their arms full. Motherlode, said Umura. All this was in the footlocker, said Gyrios, grinning. Their arms were loaded with food, a loaf of bread, a small round of soft cheese, a bowl of fresh-picked berries, and another of fresh mushrooms. The five wasted no time and devoured the food. If any had thought to save some for later, their stomachs must have overruled their brains, for when they were done, not a crumb remained. They all sat on or near the bedroll, holding their bellies. They savored the moment. Soli belched, and Eridine laughed. <laughs> Umura picked up one of the books from the floor. She paged through it and frowned. What's it about? asked Eridine after a moment. It's not a storybook, dear. It's, it's a lesson book on alchemy. See the formulas here? See where the man has written notes and questions in the margin? Eridine looked at the floor. Oh, I see. What's alchemy? It's a field of study concerning the properties of certain compounds and liquids and their effects when combined, and so on. Here, look for yourself, really. Umur turned the book around for Eridine to see. That's all right, said Eridine, waving her hand. I don't care much for books. Same with me, agreed Kagan. I'd rather talk to a real person. My father used to say the words in books mostly belong to the dead. Ha! chided Gyrios. Peasant superstition. N no offense, Kagan. Umura wasn't listening. She had put the book down and picked up another. She was paging through it rapidly, now frowning very deeply. She looked over her shoulder and back towards the desk. Gyrios, I think we missed something, 
she said, standing. Oh, I don't think so. I was most thorough, the cleric replied, puzzled. But Umura was already on her feet and heading back to the desk. I'm quite sure we looked through everything. Umura reached the desk and looked around. The desktop was strewn with papers. There was also an ink pot with a quill sticking out the top. Umura ignored these for now. Kagan, can you hold up your light just a bit? She asked. Kagan did so, and the party watched as Umura put her arm under the desk, reaching right to the back. As I thought, she proclaimed. When she withdrew her arm, there was a third book in her hand. How in Masagar's name did you know? Asked Girios, incredulous. All wizards have a spell book, said Umura, returning to the group. Not a one of us would keep theirs out of arm's reach, and not a one of us would keep it unhidden. Us? Asked Kagan. Yes, us, replied Umura. You're a... Began Eridine. Please don't say which, child. Sorceress will do if you must have a word. Kagan looked at Soli and mouthed the word as a question. Sorceress? Soli looked back and shrugged slowly, not blinking. Over the next hour, Umura told them of her life before capture, of her training, and her ruined plans to study in Polbrook. Surely you might still go to Polbrook, said Kagan. I can go, of course, said Umura, sounding bitter. But Gwilgodan takes on a new apprentice just once every five years. The chance has come and gone. He'll have made his selection by now. Do you have a book of spells? asked Aradine. I did. Well, to be truthful, it was a book of spell. I've only ever learned the one. There is a great, great deal I have yet to learn. That is why I sought further training. Anyway, my book is gone now. Umura smiled a sad smile and looked away for a moment. I should very much like to have it back, but... The book on alchemy, interrupted Gyrios. The one with questions written in. May I take a look? Umura shrugged and passed him the large volume. Gyrios flipped through it, as though hunting for some specific passage. Ah, yes, here it is. I thought I noticed something when you showed Eredin. Umura, would you say that this is one person's handwriting, or two? The cleric had his finger on a passage of margin scrawl. Let me see. She took back the book, scanned it briefly, and set it down. Damn, you're right, cleric. It's two. I should have noticed. She placed the book back on the floor, biting her lip. There was a brief moment, while realization dawned on them one by one. And then they were on their feet. Kagan, you stay here, said Umura. Girios, you get the Goblin's Club. Kagan started passing his dagger to Eridine, but stopped and looked to Umura as if asking her permission. Umura nodded decisively. We are all in this together now. Kagan lit a candle from the lamp and then passed the lamp to Umura. She took the handle in her left hand. Her right gripped the hilt of the silver dagger with the blade pointed down. Let's go, she said and strode into the circular room. The party returns to the circular room. Eridine explains to the group that she has a keen sense of hearing and convinces them to let her listen at the door. If there is something making noise behind it, she will have a one in three chance to hear it. Here comes the roll. 
Eredin is pretty sure that there is nothing beyond the door and communicates this to the group. Eredin would have liked to inspect the door for traps, but she decides that now is not the time to reveal the full range of her skill set and what that might imply about her trustworthiness, so she forgoes the search and trusts to luck that the door will be safe to open. Soli pushes the heavy trunk out of the way, and Gyrios fits the remaining unused key into the lock. It fits, and the door is unlocked with a click loud enough to make the cleric wince. Gyrios pulls the door open while Eredin readies her dagger, holding it by the blade and ready to throw, as Swin had once taught her to do. Behind the door is... Nothing. It's just another room, similar in construction and dimension to the barracks, but without any special furnishings. Gyrios indicates that it's safe to enter and the party follows him inside. A quick examination of the room shows that it had likely once been used as a storage room. There's a large trash pile in one corner, mostly consisting of the original contents of the room that had long ago gone to rot. There were leather items that had likely once been pieces of armor. They were completely dried out and unusable. There were also some metal items rusted beyond use and a wooden bucket split at the bottom. All this was piled atop five mattresses that had clearly been brought from the barracks. They were torn, yellow, stained with age. In another corner, the group is pleased to find a stack of firewood, some of it already split. A hand axe sticks out of the heavy round splitting block. This is promptly dislodged and delivered to Kagan, who, with only a candle for company, is already beginning to feel exposed and defenseless. Kagan accepts the axe with gratitude and comments that it's a good one and sharp. Loose on the floor, the group finds several other items of interest. There's a bronze chamber pot, two large glassware bottles of fresh water, and a small leather shoulder bag containing four flasks of oil and a simple tinderbox. This last item is a real find. Umura takes the bag, lifts it over her shoulder, and adjusts the buckles, making it snug. Finally, almost invisible in the dim pulsing light of their lamp, a trap door is set in the floor of the far corner. An iron ring has been set into it by which it might be locked, but there is no lock to be seen. Eridine is not afraid of dark places, but when she looks upon it, she feels a creeping sense of dread. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard, please consider leaving a five-star review for the show on iTunes. It helps a great deal. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a webcomic based on the classic D&D adventure module, The Keep on the Borderlands. Follow a party of adventurers as they travel through the adventure. This comic is driven by characters, but the results of actions are based on dice rolls, just like a tabletop game. Start reading this exciting webcomic now. Visit thekeeptheborderlands.justinpfeil.com 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Let's discover together what's going to happen.